Good morning and welcome again to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering. It's a good time, as always, to be here and to study the Word of the Lord. Um, Even those texts that, uh, as you read them, you're thinking, um, how does the ox and the sheep apply to me? Um, But it's still, these are still principles, these are still guiding lights for us. And um, I think what we're going to find as we continue to go through these texts is that God, God is teaching ultimately His people about justice and doing what is right. And He gives us countless examples in order that we may be saturated um, with the knowledge and the truth and the context behind His laws and commands. And this is more today. This is what we find in the book of Covenant and more of what we'll experience today. I want to say, because I haven't said this in a while in my introduction, and I know that you get tired of hearing it, or you might not get tired of hearing it, but it doesn't mean as much to you if I say it as often, so I will say it today. I love you very much, and I'm so thankful for you. Uh, You mean so much to me, and I know that my life would be worse uh, if you guys were not in my life. And uh, yours probably would be a little bit better on some scales uh, if I weren't, but it, it might be, a, my hope is that, you know, I've improved or helped your life a little bit. I'm so thankful for, for you guys, and uh, I want to I move on today, and I think today we, uh, uh, hopefully this will be a sort of a shorter and concise uh, sermon. I don't want to get your hopes too high. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't. But today I want to speak to you specifically on uh, punishment versus rescue, and revenge versus redemption. These are four thoughts that go on in society when we're trying to act justly, or we call ourselves, um, or catch ourselves, or call ourselves as acting justly. Punishment versus rescue, revenge uh, versus redemption. As we studied in the Book of Covenants and, and really the Ten Commandments, there has been one underlying thought or idea that has been running through my head, and and that is the thought of the justice of God. That as we study the Ten Commandments, what we really are seeing is a picture of how God gets things right. And when we say justice, it, it can mean different things to different people. To some, it means that the lowliest people on earth uh, get a say, and they get the good that they deserve, or to... So they create a system that um, redistributes justice, redistributes wealth, or redistributes uh, rights or or whatever it may be to everyone. And on some level, the things that come of that are are good and profitable and even founded in Christian ideas. But on other levels, um, it is um, freeing one group from slavery by forcing another group into slavery. Uh, To others, it means that things are done to make you feel better about a situation. Usually justice for many people means taking revenge. It means getting what you deserve because someone has hurt you. It goes back to something like this. Someone hurt me, and justice would be that they got hurt back. And most of the time, if you think about it, our justice is that if it's personal justice, it's they get hurt worse than I got hurt, right? 
And then there are those who take a biblical understanding of justice, and, and that is that uh, wrongs are made right and that published punishment is given as it is deserved. And all of this is done with the end goal of restoring both the victim and the assailant. We, however, really do not live in a just society any longer. We have prison systems that lumps the hardened criminals with those who have committed petty crimes. We have policies that keep people in prison with the goal being mouths to feed for private prison, prison companies. All of this destroying families by taking fathers and mothers out of homes and, and offering little to no hope for reform. If we're honest with ourselves, our prison system and our justice system is not meant today, in today's age and time, to reform the criminal. It's meant to keep the criminal in their punishment. It's not meant to reform the criminal. And it destroys the family. So it's this sort of, it's this sort of reoccurring cycle because there is this criminal who, con- who performs a petty crime and sometimes crimes that are a, a little more heinous but not um, um, murder. or so. It's a, it's, a, it's a criminal act like stealing or robbery or something like that or, or drug um, drug selling or what, drug dealing, whatever. And, and these people, although they perform this crime, there's an opportunity at the beginning to take them and, and do something with them to hopefully get them back into society. But our society is more bent on um, filling prison cages than, than emptying them. And it destroys the family. So it's cyclical because the next thing we know is that son that has lost his father or mother is going to be into the same life that his father or mother, were, they were not reformed from. That's not justice. That is not justice. This is not how the law of God was written. This is not how the book of covenant tells us to handle crimes, whether incidental or intentional. We live in a society that is hung up on punishment. You should be punished and revenge, rather than a civil system that focuses on rescue and redemption. The latter is how God formed the society that His people people committed to for thousands of years. His people committed to I mean, not perfectly, obviously, but as people committed to these laws that were intended to prompt them to seek rescue and redemption. This is what, believe it or not, we see in Exodus 22, 1-15. It's also what we've seen in these other aspects of the book of covenant. And by the end of this sermon, I hope to give us a clearer picture as to how we can be people that base our judgments on redemption and rescue and not revenge and punishment. Look at Exodus 22, 1 through 15. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive and his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over and lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall, be, he shall make restitution 
from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorn, uh, and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain of, or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand on the neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one who God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hands on his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor, uh, of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall, ma- he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. Pray with me today. Lord, would you teach us from your word? Would you help us to unjumble what seems like a confusing set of laws that we don't quite comprehend because they don't fit our context, or at least at face value? Lord, would you teach us from your, tr- from your truth? God, we know that if we're going to learn from you, we're going to learn from your word today. And we can and will see your truth today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we study this text, I want to accomplish two things. I want us to see the laws that God is covering. That's first, these case laws. But I want us to see how they help us to be just people. And that's most important. I want us to see these laws, and I want us to understand them a little bit. But I want us to see how they help us to be just people. And and our sermon will be broken down in those two parts. And the first is this. We're We're going to come with three areas of case laws that are described here. The first is general theft. The second is a careless neighbor. And the third is borrowing or caring for our neighbor's property. I'll repeat those again if you're taking notes so you don't have to write them all quickly. General theft, a careless neighbor borrowing or caring for our neighbor's property. The first is general theft. We must understand that God is not giving us an exhaustive list uh, of what might happen, but he is laying out something that would most commonly happen. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and he slaughters it, that means he can't return it if he's found, if he's caught. He can't give the animal back. He should pay back five oxen for one ox and four sheep for one sheep. Now, at the gym the other day, Griffin asked me because he was reading ahead. He was like, I'm trying to figure out what the next part's going to be about when you're getting done with this boring section. I'm just kidding. He didn't say that last part. But uh, we were discussing this, and he asked, why is, five, why is one ox worth five oxen and one sheep worth four sheep? I thought it was a good question. Uh, exactly. Um, he has to balance the books. But um, here's what it seems to mean. Animals in that time were a sign of wealth or they were a sign of poverty. The more livestock you had, the more wealthy you were. They symbolized those things because they were directly related to your livelihood, to your survival. 
So the reason an ox had more value is because it was more, nece- it was more necessary for survival. The ox pulled carts for travel. It pulled a plow for farming. Or often there were contraptions for gr- grinding grain or, or running early equipment that um, we don't really uh, know about now because it's all electronic now. We don't really know the need for um, ox power or, or horsepower. Um, but, but an ox had more value. If, if you steal an ox, in my, and I'll use a couple of these illustrations today um, because it's most pertinent to me, but if you steal an ox, in, in, uh, in, it would be more like stealing someone's livelihood. If you steal sheep, it would be more like stealing food and clothing. And often, really, sheep could easily escape or run away. We've seen that. They're used as examples of, you know, the parable of the lost sheep, different things like that. So to me, it was helpful to break it down like this. Someone comes to my house and they steal my truck, which has all my tools and really my livelihood. Or it has most of my tools and and really my livelihood. Or someone comes to my house and steals my groceries and some of my clothes. Like that's kind of the difference here. Um, The thing that is primarily responsible for my livelihood is is much more important than the thing that is is not. At least I think uh, this is what it's saying sort of on a smaller scale. Um, the reason really being because they didn't have insurance. You know, they didn't have other aides to come and help them with their lost property. If they lost an ox, they lost an ox. And, and they had to find some way to repay that. If, my, if, they, if an ox broke its leg, it was done. The other day, I, or over the past six months or so, I've had two of my DeWalt tools go bad. And I have, one was a battery and one was an uh, orbital sander. And I have had, um, I have had, no problems out of those. But you know what I did to replace my loss? I said, hey, DeWalt, I've had these things for about two years, you know. These are, these are gone bad. What are you going to do? Next thing you know, battery was in the mail. And DeWalt actually followed, I don't know if they intentionally did it or not, but they followed the principle of the Christian, or the Christian principle here because I had, I had purchased two batteries. One went bad, and they sent me a two-pack back. So they followed the Christian principle. They they. Gave me one plus the one. So they doubled their effort there. But then they sent me the tool back. So my livelihood was restored quite easily. But there's no warranties on an ox leg. You know, if, if an ox breaks its leg, if a horse breaks its leg, if a donkey breaks its leg, it's down. And it's food at that point, uh, depending on what animal it is, I'm sure. Uh, they were a little bit less picky about what they ate than, uh, than we are. Um, but if a sheep goes missing, they're... There's a larger quantity of them. They, they go missing all the time. So that's kind, of, that's kind of the difference there. That was a long explanation, but it kind of helps out a little bit, I think. Um, so, so the next case goes to the thief that breaks into the house. Now, at this time, this would have been massively important because the house likely was not fortified like ours are. And even if you don't have an alarm or if you don't even lock your doors, your house is still much more fortified than theirs were. What were they living in? They, at this, literally, at this time, they were probably living in tents, right? So this is how you broke into their house. You know, and then after that, when they started settling down a little bit, they, their houses were likely made of mud and clay. So if you wanted to break in, you just got a five-year-old who wanted to dig, and you put them on the side of the house. And by the time they were done, by the time they were done, you were in the house, right? So, so the, the next one kind of goes to the, the thief who breaks into the house. Um, it had been quite easy at the time. The principle then is this. If someone breaks into your house at night, now remember also there was no quick access to lighting. You know, there was no flashlight. You couldn't turn a switch and get a light on to see who it was. 
Um, but if someone breaks in your house at night, uh, you are allowed to, to guard your, your house. When you cannot see, when your family's sleeping, you're allowed to guard your house. You have the right to protect your house, even if it means ending the life of a person breaking in. But there's a different story. If the person breaks in during the day, the expectation is, is that if it's possible, a cooler head would, should prevail. Now, this is someone breaking into steel. This is not someone breaking in to harm you, which, you know, you've got a matter of seconds to try to figure that out anyway. But, but the, cooler, the, the idea during the day is that cooler heads would prevail. This is maybe if you had left your house and then you walked in on someone uh, rifling through your stuff. You know, you caught them. They're caught. You know, if they're not trying to kill you, restrain them. That's what the Bible's saying. You can see them. You can call for help. More people are awake. You know, you can do those kind of things. And so the, the principle here really is to redeem the person who is being harmed and to redeem the person who is doing the harm. And finally, uh, under this, the Lord gives punishment for the one who steals valuable livestock and if the livestock is found alive. Even if the criminal gives the livestock back, the expectation is that he should pay double for what is taken. It's the irony of the law, right? It's the irony of the law. That which the man desired so greatly that he stole, he should have to give that back plus. The thing he wanted, he gives back what was originally the owner's plus the thing he wanted. It's the irony of the law. There's a second case that, uh, that we could study, and that is of the careless neighbor. That first is general theft. The second is the careless neighbor. The careless neighbor is described as one who lets his animals graze in the other man's field or vineyard, or lets his animals roam free or, or go out um, uh, and eat from another man's field, or go out and roam in another man's field, whatever it is. Or the neighbor who accidentally sets fire to his neighbor's field. Now you might ask, how do you accidentally set fire to a neighbor's field? Well, it's, there's a very common practice in this time, and, and for a a long history of, of burning your hay and your stubble and your straw. Now this is, what, this is the illustration that the Lord uses for the final consumption of those who die without Christ is they will be burned up like hay and stubble, stubble and straw, like the chaff. If the reason is, is because these things, they were the leftovers. They were the refuse. And, and they, got, they needed a way to get rid of them. But also, when you burn these things, it it produces and brings nutrients back into the ground. So oftentimes people would burn these things uh, after a harvest or at different times, and because things were dry, they could catch an entire field on fire. They could catch standing grain, it says, or they could catch the grain that was stacked, which is the one that had been cut for the harvest. No matter what, if you accidentally catch a field on fire, retribution should be made. Restitution should be made. So I don't necessarily want to give a, mo a million modern-day examples for each, but here are some. Letting an animal graze in another field could be similar to cheating on a test if you're a student. Uh, because what you're doing is, in, in letting an animal graze in another field, is taking from another person's wealth to increase your own wealth. So if you're cheating on a test, you're taking from another person's wealth of knowledge to increase your own wealth. Uh, in the case, it would be uh, another person's wealth that you're stealing, another person's wealth of knowledge. It could be like we discussed last week, uh, reckless driving, or even doing some improvements on your property that causes damage or, or loss of value 
to another. It wouldn't be helpful to implicate anyone, but one of your friends in our church had a neighbor who did some home improvements and wound up regularly dumping a bunch of water uh, onto their property. And being an eyesore. Okay, so we are going to implicate it. Uh, And being an eyesore. Now, this would be an instance where payback or restitution would be justified if it could not be remedied immediately. The instance with a fire could be negligence at a campsite or it could be some other way that we show negligence. I've heard of cases where uh, a neighbor, in cleaning their pool, their pool got really bad, and in cleaning their pool, they backwashed their pool into their neighbor's house. The property sloped down, and they had privacy fences and probably couldn't see what they were doing, but they backwashed their pool into their neighbor's house. Retribution is required. Restitution is required. Now, we kind of touched on these last week, but either way, the person who commits the crime is responsible for restitution. Not so that they can be punished and set back so much that it hurts them, but so that the person that they hurt can be restored. There's one more case that I want to look at, and then we can look further into some practical applications of what these verses tell us about justice. And that is borrowing or caring for a neighbor's property. Look at verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand on the neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey or for a sheep or for a cloak or for any other kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one who God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hands on his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and shall not ma- and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbors and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came with a hiring fee. Now this, to me, as I was reading it, was the most difficult set of verses to sort of separate and diagnose and and bring about. But I think there are some very important principles in it. The first aspect of this case deals with the neighbor who has left his possessions with the neighbor for safekeeping. Now this may seem an odd practice to you, but what was the alternative? So this was very common. You couldn't just go down to the bank and put your money and your valuables in a safety deposit box while you went on a long journey, uh, which if you went on a journey, it was a long journey. You wouldn't take it with you. You wouldn't take all of your possessions with you, likely because there was chance of marauders and people who would steal along the way. You couldn't kennel the animals that stayed. You couldn't lock up your mud and clay house and turn on your Brinks alarm. So often people would leave things with their neighbor. Well, in this instance, a, pers- a person in this instance a person has come in to steal. Now, if the thief is found, we know it. It's fine. It's Plain and simple, up front, the thief should be caught and he should be required to pay double. As a matter of fact, this goes back to the whole slavery and servanthood thing. If the thief can't pay restitution for what he's done, 
he can be hired off into servanthood. And uh, he can pay for the restitution, which honestly we'll discuss in a minute. Um, on some level would help our criminal justice system more than what we see now. And I'll discuss that uh, in just a minute. But if the thief is found, he shall pay double for what he stole. But if he is not found, then the neighbor shall go before God. This simply means this, that they would go before the court of judges established by God and would see if the neighbor who was left responsible had taken the goods or whatever it was that he had been entrusted with or if it was actually stolen by a thief. And if he was found innocent, he owes no restitution. But if he is guilty of taking from his neighbor, he shall do what? shall pay double. That's the, that's the penalty for, for stealing. You should pay what you stole and pay back what you stole plus it again. The second instance is when a neighbor is responsible for the safekeeping of an animal. If the animal dies, is injured, or, or driven away, the neighbor is only responsible for restitution if he has personally caused harm. If an animal is stolen from the neighbor's care, then the neighbor is responsible. It's like those memes that said, you only had one job and the person really messed up their job, their one job they had. The, the one job of the neighbor would be to keep the animal from getting stolen, really, and to feed it. And if the animal gets stolen, the neighbor sort of logically is responsible um, for that. But if the beast is killed, which was more common and harder to defend against, uh, then if the, animal, if the neighbor could prove that the animal was killed by another animal, um, the neighbor would not be responsible for restitution. Now, the last is the case of, for some reason I can't get out of my head, like the 90s teen heartthrob TV shows or whatever, where the young boy, I saw an episode of, of what was Tim Allen's show called? Home Improvement, where uh, the oldest, Randy, was responsible for keeping his uh, Jennifer's, I can't believe I remember those names. Um, I saw it recently. So he was responsible for keeping her goldfish. And the goldfish died. Um, so uh, Randy, in this instance, would have been responsible. There were two goldfish. He would have been responsible for four goldfish. Um, just to give you an example of... Uh, but I can't get that illustration out of my head. I told myself I wasn't going to say it to you today. And here we are. Um, so uh, in the last case of a borrowing, uh, if a person borrows from his neighbor, an injury or death or other things uh, mentioned happened, um, these sort of restitutions have been... Uh, laid out. Now, some comparisons for me would be uh, when someone borrows tools. Um, I typically don't like to let someone borrow tools because oftentimes they come back beaten up uh, or broken, uh, which is why, um, you know, if I can't afford to replace it myself, I, I don't let people borrow it. Um, often because the people who borrow the tools can't afford to replace the tools that they are borrowing. Um, now, I'm sure that maybe some examples came to your mind as you've been reading and hearing uh, these case laws, and um, maybe we can discuss those more in MC. I'm not here to give you a million everyday life examples. I want you to think about those things, and I'm not here to try to help you understand better Hebrew case law, but to just point out how um, it is helpful for living. And it is helpful, these case laws are helpful to help us to see justice and righteousness and how God is good and how to do right in certain situations even. Now what I want to do is I want to point out or expound on a few ideas God has given us about living justly um, as the last thing uh, I want to do today. And the first way that God points out um, 
about how we can live justly is he says this, um, the Bible promotes private property ownership and the right to protect that property. Now, I've said this before, so I want to expound on it a little bit. The Bible promotes private property ownership and the right to protect that property. You've heard me say this, but one underlying idea in the book of covenant is that God promotes the ownership of private and personal property. Therefore, it is not just, it is not just for any person or entity to take from a person without permission. This is why I say socialism in the way it is presented to us is not just dangerous, but it is an anti-Christian thought. It is also why I believe that the American tax system, specifically, specifically because of the way our government spends money, is theft. Our goal as Christians, and we have seen this over and over in Scripture, is not to live for wealth and to hope to attain riches, but the Bible makes rules and regulations to make sure that you know that you have a right to your house. You have a right to your livestock or the equivalent now. You have a right to your clothes. You have a right to the money you earned. And it is unjust for someone to take that away just because they want it or because they think you have too much. It is also unjust for someone to guilt you because you have done well with your life. But it is even more unjust for the Christian to have a lot and to hoard it from those who have little. The Bible never, the Bible never commands others to forcibly take away from what we have. But the Bible does command the Christian to have a heart for the poor, to have a heart for the needy, to have a heart for the downtrodden, to have a heart for the destitute. Friends, if Christians, if people in general followed the laws of God as He established them, there would be no need, not just Christians, because the need has been so great. The government has made it to where people need welfare. I'm not, I'm not just blaming Christians here. But if Christians and people in general followed the moral laws of God, there would be no need for welfare. Because Christians would be responsible. People who followed the moral laws of God also, in addition to Christians, would be responsible for the, moral, uh, for the welfare of people, other people. So we are not condemned for owning. We are not condemned for having. But we are condemned for hoarding. We are condemned for hoarding. Remember, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Friends, the people in this room, especially the people in this room, should be some of the most giving, charitable people that you know. The Bible says, the Bible calls it outdoing each other in kindness, outdoing each other in giving, outdoing each other in love. We should be some of the most charitable people we know. The thing that is good about us being responsible with our money and us being responsible with the things God has given us is that it gives us the ability to give more away for the cause of Christ. Not hoard, not keep. The Bible promotes private property ownership and the right to protect that property. Number two, the Bible gives us an application. The Bible gives us application of lex talionis. Now, we've talked about this before, but I haven't used the Latin term for this. This is an eye for an eye, lex talionis. Literally, the punishment should fit the crime. We have discussed this a few times, but 
you know, not in the Latin. We've just said eye for an eye. The punishment should fit the crime. But as we have said before, these covenants were the first of its kind. Not only protecting the citizen's rights, but what else? Protecting the rights of a criminal. It's, it's crazy if you think about it. It's groundbreaking. For instance, Hammurabi's code punished based on social status of the victim and social status of the criminal. If you rob from a king, it would be different than robbing from the poor person, which is unjust for both the victim and the assailant. These rules also regulated uh, punishment. Um, in Hammurabi's code, uh, it, it, it regulated punishment of another kind. In Hammurabi's code, if a person was caught breaking into a house or breaching a wall, the code says they should be killed and the wall should be repaired with them in it. Now that would make a wonderful lawn ornament, but the Lord calls it unjust. All of the laws outside of the Lord's were about revenge and punishment. You took from me, now I will take from you more. But the Lord's laws were different. They were about making things right, about paying restitution, but not so much more that it could not also show grace to the criminal. Because those crimes that didn't require death, as the Lord commanded, he saw as redeemable. He saw as redeemable. Both because of this, both the criminal and the victim are image bearers of God. Both the criminal and the victim. The grace of God shows us that it isn't an eye for an entire family, but it's an eye for an eye, and the punishment should fit the crime. These law, these just laws promote private property ownership, and they our application for lex talionis. And the Bible promotes laws being enforced in proportion to your amount of guilt. The Bible promotes laws being enforced in proportion to your amount of guilt. This spills over from what I said about uh, Hammurabi's Code, there, uh, where other cultures' laws did not take into account culpability or how much blame there was, how much guilt there was for the crime. The covenants did. We see this today. If a neighbor was keeping his neighbor's possession and they were lost or killed, but he did not act irresponsibly, then he was not liable for restitution. But the more he was to blame, the more he was liable. This is, how, this is not how laws of the past were enforced. And uh, like I said in the last point, a person was often punished based on their social status and the status of the person who committed the, who they committed the crime against. The just measures of intent and uh, culpability did not come into play. These laws teach us not to make blanket judgments about a criminal. This plays out well when we understand that not all police officers are bad, but when we do recognize the guilt and blame the ones that are. Or not all criminals... Not all criminal, uh, criminals who are put to death are justifiable because they have pot on them or because they were performing some nonviolent crime. But the punishment, even from a police officer to a criminal, must fit the crime. Should be given in proportionate measures to how guilty the person is, if that can be measured in the time. We do well to see all lives, friends, as image bearers and treat them as such. And this leads us to sort of this last point 
today, and I want to point out what is really at the heart of the, the Ten Commandments. It's at the heart of the Book of Covenant. It's at the heart of the laws of God. The Bible commands the Christians to seek rescue for the victim and redemption for the assailant. The Bible commands Christians to, to seek rescue for the victim and redemption for the assailant. This idea in and of itself is contrary to our laws today and the laws in its time. But this is vastly important to see. Church, the Lord cares not just for the victim, but also the assailant. The Lord cares for both, whereas the criminal justice system has been twisted to enact revenge and punishment. The Lord's criminal justice system was designed to rescue for the rescue of the victim and the redemption of the assailant, which is the ultimate goal of any act like this. If it isn't a capital if it isn't a capital crime like we discussed last week, to redeem both people is the ultimate goal. Here is the problem with our system today. The small-time drug dealer is in the same population with the murderer or the gangbanger. The thief is in the same population with the child molesters. And the prison systems are full and private prison contractors are fat and happy. This is not how the Lord designed justice. The Lord designed it so that justly convicted murderers, especially those who committed premeditated murder, should die. They should die. As the law said, there is no reform for them, according to the Lord. That the kidnapper should what? Should die. That those who perform sexual acts in unnatural ways should die. The child molester. Those who were justly convicted of rape. All of this sounds harsh. All of this sounds harsh, doesn't it? They should die. They should die. But to me, not only like we talked about last week, that it is, it is unjust for those victims or any future victims to leave those people alive, it is also unjust with the rest of the prison population with which you have the desire to reform. If you put them in the same population together. Sounds harsh. But you tell me this, what is more harsh? Holding small-time criminals for a lifetime in a system with people for all, who all, for all intents and purposes should be dead, or ending the life of a person when justified and having a prison system that is built on actual <coughs> reform. Having a prison, prison system where the thief can come in and he can work off his debt, as the Bible describes, and learn a skill at the same time. He can build roads. He can build government buildings. He can paint houses. He can clean streets. There are many more things that he can do. Now, friends, I want to tell you, there are systems like this in place, and those systems have seen vast success in reforming the criminal. Vast success in reforming the criminal. But there's too much money involved in, pe- in keeping people imprisoned. And the longer you keep people in prison, the more you're guaranteeing more clients in the future. The Lord established a system that considered the person wronged and the person doing the wrong. So how do we respond as Christians in the system? The Lord is teaching us that we don't seek revenge and, and punishment, but that we seek rescue for the victim and retribution I mean, excuse me, redemption for the assailant and just retribution, just restitution. We are not overcome with our need for vengeance, 
But we have the Lord's mind when it comes to those performing the criminal acts, which is why we read Romans 12 today, which says things like this. Live in harmony. Don't be pride. Don't be too prideful to associate with the poor or lowly. Don't repay evil with evil. But do what is honorable. Live peaceably where it is possible. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the Lord. In opposition to vengeance, do this. Love your enemy. If he is is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Not only will we honor God, but we will heap burning coals on their head. Meaning it might make them so mad that they repent, but if they don't repent, it will burn them up a lot more than the vengeance that you could have given them. Because ultimately, the, the, the ultimate goal of someone who is angry with you is to get you to act in a vengeful way. Because vengeance allows them to go back at you. But if you act in a just way and a kind way, not returning evil for evil, but returning evil with good, they have no grounds for their own retribution. And it's like a heaping coals on their head. They're sitting there stewing. What can I do? I can't do anything. They are, they are, they are, they are, they have not given me one out, one way. If you act in a vengeful way, you just open the floodgates. You open the floodgates for someone else acting in that way. Don't be haughty, the Lord says. Most of the arguments in our families, most of the arguments among friends, most of the arguments that happen on the side of the road or on Facebook and Twitter happen because at least one person has chosen to be prideful and let that pride prevent them from showing grace. Friends, the Lord says when we're harmed, we don't act as if we are the person that harmed us originally. We act as if we are a person who is redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we offer forgiveness. If a person harms us, we offer forgiveness. We offer kindness. We offer love. Before the person steals from us, we give to the poor. Before they can steal from us, before they ever get that desperate, we give to the poor. We give to the needy. Friends, you know what this tells me? Christians need to be a little more vulnerable and a little less cynical. That's what it tells me. It tells me in order to act justly, Christians need to be a little more vulnerable and a little less cynical. Here's the deal. I've said this, I've said this illustration, and some of you, a lot of you probably have heard it before, but I want to say it again. Um, I, was at a, I was in a sermon one time, and um, it was not a person that I would ever listen to again. Um, just because he's sort of a seeker-friendly, you know, he's a part of that, let's get everybody into the church, we're, we're fun and we're all this. And, but he gave an illustration that I thought was helpful. He, said, he was talking about Christians and their responsibility to others and how we treat others. And, and he said, it's better for a Christian to take the knife out of their own back than to take it out of someone else's hand. Here's what he was saying. I thought it was good. Now, this is not, again, this is not the right to, this is not taking away your right to defend yourself. This is not taking away your right to justice or even debate or anything like that. But here's the deal. Here's what he's saying. Christians should lean on the side of vulnerability more than they lean on the side of cynicism. It's better to trust someone so much, to give someone your heart again, in order that, with the likelihood that you may be hurt, instead of taking that knife out of their hand before you even give them a chance by being cynical and saying they can never 
earn my trust again. They can never earn my love again. They can never earn a relationship with me again. Friends, I'm telling you, humility is humility is not cynicism. Cynicism is grounded in pride. The fact that you think so-and-so can never be reformed, or so-and-so can never do this, or so-and-so can never earn my trust again, that's pride. That's cynicism. Humility is grounded in, in our vulnerability is grounded in humility. And it's hard for me. It's hard for me to be vulnerable. Here's the deal for me. If you break my trust, you can earn it back again, but probably not in this lifetime. That's, what, that's how I feel. That's how I feel. Maybe when Jesus returns, maybe when we die, you can earn my trust again. That's not what, that's not what the Bible tells me, though. The Bible tells me that I should forgive as I have been forgiven. The Bible tells me that I should return evil with good. That I should reach out to the person that I hate in love. That I should be kind. That I should not be prideful, but I should associate with lowly, the lowly or the poor. That instead of seeking vengeance, I should seek the retribution and reformation of those who have performed even hurtful acts against me. And the result is this. The result is when you are humble, when you are vulnerable, when you put yourself out there in this way, you stop a fight. You stop the cycle of revenge because the other person has no ammo at that point. The other person has no ammo. And that's why it's like a a heap of burning coals on their head. What are they to do? What are they to do? It can't hurt you anymore. You've, you've disarmed them. Friends, if there's one thing I've seen in the Ten Commandments, if there's one thing I've seen in the Law of Covenants, it's this. That God is teaching Christians to live justly, to do what is right. Why? Because He is just and righteous. And that's all He knows. That's all He knows. He knows to do what is right because what is right is within his will and he cannot deny himself. He wants to teach us to do what's right. He wants to teach us to be vulnerable, to, to seek justice, to not only seek redemption for the victim, but to seek redemption and recovery for those who are accused. God, we love you so much. You are so good and you are holy and you teach us so much from your word. You teach us what is good and what is holy and what is right. Lord, you give us love and you give us understanding, but Lord, I pray for an extra measure of love when it comes to um, dealing with and, and, and communicating with people who we don't like or people who have wronged us or hurt us, that you may reinstitute, reorganize vulnerability in our life, that we may love again, that we may trust again. I do know this, Lord. It is a very lonely life when we can't trust others and love others as you have commanded us to do.